is 1.37 p.m. Stories of hustle and grind from the intersection of culture, style, music, and sports. What's up, everybody? Appreciate you taking the time to listen to another episode of Huh? In this conversation, I sat down with Yatsu. Yatsu is the co-founder of Animoca Brands. And Animoca Brands is a, a game company that plays big in the blockchain and NFT space, big in mobile-first gaming. Um, and we, we had a fun conversation, all things Web 3.0. Yat was the founder and CEO of Outblaze, which was a, a massive early internet company. Um, and, and so he's really pushing, pushing the limits on new games, uh, new technologies in the space. We talked a bit about working with uh, existing IP versus creating new IP. Um, Animoca Brands just uh, announced and rolled out a product, a new NFT collectible with the Olympics, which is about as iconic as IP as it comes. Uh, Animoca Brands oversees F1, their blockchain game which is doing fairly well and runs on the rev token. So all, all encompassing conversation. Uh, if you're, if you're curious about NFT and video games or blockchain and video games, even in silos, the crossover is going to uh, be fascinating to see play out. And I think you're going to start to see a lot more coming from Animoca brands in, in mainstream media. It is a is a pleasure to be sitting here with you as I, as I was kind of over the weekend, you know, putting some preparation together of hey questions here, there, everywhere. Obviously, Web 3.0 and the term NFT and blockchain is like so all encompassing and so um, very much uh, rabbit hole. It felt the same way as I was going down your, your history and the, and the Plinko board of Animoca brands and Enway and everything. And so um, that's kind of how I like the role is just let's, let's throw the dice out on the table and see what happens. The first thing I wanted to pick your brain about is obviously you saw great success in, you know, creating businesses around Web 2.0. What are the main things that you learned and took away from Web 2.0 as you now kind of enter and, and push the fold in new age Web 3.0? Well, I think the big thing about Web 1 and Web 2, uh, the big strength that I saw in those communities was a kind of democratization of information. So essentially the free access and the open access of things that provided effectively community power. Right? That's really the essence of a lot of things. And perhaps the best demonstration of that that we were very active and still active in is open source. And open source is perhaps that best demonstration where you know, the complete openness of that information, that knowledge made it possible today for a five person organization to compete with you know, a 10,000 person organization and still be competitive. And the network effect of the code itself in the open source manner is so powerful that even the 10,000 person organization had to access open source and contribute equally because they can't compete with the power that was in open source. But everything was technically free in the sense that the only thing that was exchanged was sort of the sharing of knowledge. Uh, and so not exactly a direct value transfer, but the sharing of knowledge and information. And the communities that came out of it benefited from it as a result. So I think with Web 1 and Web 2, we saw the beginnings of essentially that network effect 
uh, where we also then went from a, well, let's trust an organization to let's trust this website, <laughs> this yeah. nameless organization that I don't know who you are, but you know what? If 10,000 people said you're good, then I think you're good, right? So, so we we also so we went from this relationship where I need to trust only people that I can see and touch to I'm okay to trust a website, mm-hmm. and that essentially really sort of created another element of building communities with a kind of trust layer at scale, mm-hmm. where I can now trust through this kind of information aggregation and community aggregation against m- multiple groups. And you then also had the development of global micro niches that were no longer yeah. that niche yeah. because basically suddenly thing. you could, yeah, right. You could connect millions of people around the world that had a similar interest that mm-hmm. would never scale in the city or the geogra- geographic location they were in. And now because of the web, they all connected, right? Yeah. So, so that was all already evolving. And these sort of, and, and sort of there's the evolution of, let's call it like a metaverse light, you know, mm-hmm. sort of just yeah. kind of getting there, but not quite, right? Yeah. And, uh, and so I think, this is sort of the, the the big thing that I see with Web3 is essentially the sort of supercharging of these kind of community network effects. Mm-hmm. But one where there's not just a transfer of value, but one of ownership. Mm-hmm. And the key thing about ownership is that that ownership benefits everyone who has a stake in it. Right? So, yeah, the, so the, one the incentives the are more clear. Well, the incentives are not just clear. I think the, the incentives are fair, right? Yeah. Um, so So clear, yes. Mm-hmm. I also think, um, although there could be a debate as to, you know, is, is what we're seeing in blockchain and Web3, is it equality or is it equity? We can debate that all day long. Yeah. But the point is, is that it's a new framework in which, we, you know, we offer these opportunities to everyone as yeah. opposed to the ones that are there. Because one of the challenges with Web1, Web2 is that as it all grew, the problem was that the knowledge that was then harvested from this, which is really the network effect, uh, was something that was very difficult for individuals to do because they couldn't participate in the network. Mm-hmm. So the only way in which you could actually benefit from the network effect was either if you knew how to code as an open source, or maybe you were a shareholder in someone yeah. like a Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. But you you weren't able to participate in any other way, really. Yeah. And the bits of information that you represented, the data you represented, wasn't worthwhile or worth much in and of itself. Yeah. But inside a platform was worth a lot. And because we couldn't manage that data, we gave it away to the platforms yeah. and essentially uh, allowed them to aggregate our data and basically actually start ruling over it mm-hmm. and basically become the network platforms and getting all the network effect benefits. With blockchain, actually the network benefits, the network effect benefits actually goes directly to the end user because of the fact that they own this NFT or they own this data and it's a collective as a result. That's the part that's so powerful uh, here. And, and of course it affects everything from Web3 NFTs, blockchain, the whole nine, you know, it's something that has been on my mind a lot and is a kind of deeper thought or question, but is this notion of, you know, is capitalism or, you know, coming from someone that's grown up in the U S and, and more so, you know, in New York city, which can very much be like bubble, you know, land of the world, but this notion of how does capitalism, you know, get integrated into web 3.0 in a way that can be still beneficial for all, right? I think about Epic Games taking Apple to court for being a closed garden, yet I don't have the ability to create my own skins and sell them, you know, on on Fortnite or the marketplace. I think about um, Activision Blizzard and loot boxes in um, Warzone. 
it is only a matter of time, in my opinion, before those are all digital assets. But what does that transition process look like for these AAA studios? I'm not sure. I'm very fascinated to see it play out because on one Mm -hmm. hand, is it the utmost benefit to the shareholders, which is kind of the CEO and the, the, the company's job to make this transition? And how does it happen in a way that isn't like very much ripping the Band-Aid off? Well, I mean, first of all, I think what you have, it's in, as we have seen in history, but certainly with those game companies, you have an innovator's dilemma, which is yeah. they're making good money, right? There's nothing broken about their business model. Right? Yeah. Billions and billions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, ultimate in, team in for industry. EA Sports. Exactly, right? So why would you, why would you, why would you change that? And it would be frankly, fairly, probably quite irresponsible for you to just do that. But we've seen this before, right? If you just go back even just like 10 odd years or so when the birth of mobile games really came about, which is where we started getting very active in, in the gaming space through mobile gaming, it was the same thing. You know, none of the big guys were doing anything. And the idea that you would do free to play and that you would be charging, you know, 99 cents to $1.99 for an app download when you used to be paying $40, $50 for each install, sort of for each software was kind of a silly idea, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so why would you do that? And of course, it, we all now today created more of an access of a market, more, more, more users and everything. But of course, at that point in time, none of the big guys were doing it, yeah. which is you know how uh, new players got into the space. And essentially, because they became so big, they forced the large players to enter out of a necessity. And then they became very acquisitive. They started acquisitions. And you know, Activision really didn't get into the space until they acquired Kingdom.com for, I think it was $6 billion, right? Yeah. You know, and Tencent basically sort of getting heavy with, in, with, with Supercell mm-hmm. right, when they acquired control of that. And yeah. you know, uh, all, of, all, all of the major companies out there basically acquired their way into it. Mm-hmm. But of course, also companies that were not big 10 years ago became very large as independent mobile games operators. And so that I think will happen exactly the same with this sort of the blockchain gaming space as well, as sort of the web three gaming space, because while there will be the large players who are looking on the sidelines wondering, okay, maybe we should go, maybe we shouldn't go, what should we do here? The uh, smaller players do not have the same burden, right? They yeah. can basically go in. Innovate and game, go fast. Go fast, break things, make mm-hmm. mistakes, do all the kind of things that the large players cannot. And then at that point, you'll have the same thing, which is a bunch of them will be really Roll successful. And they'll yep. become, yeah, and exactly. Uh, but then there'll be a bunch of them that are maybe not quite as successful, but they've got all the intellectual know-how, they've got stuff and they might get gobbled up by sort of the large corporations as they play catch up. So I think right now we're not at the consolidation phase, we're still at yeah. the growth phase. Yep. And there's also only a very small number of companies that actually know how to do this well, because it kind of hit a little bit like sort of a, like sort of this sort of crash in terms of, Oh my goodness, we all yeah. want to do stuff with NFTs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, boom, boom, was, boom. And then the, oh, the people that are staying throughout. That's right. And so they've, they've moved so fast that uh, that people um, sort of aren't really quite sure. And so as a result, we still don't have a large number of, let's call it, credible companies building yeah. this space. It's yeah. also why there's been a bit of a valuation squeeze in terms of the companies that are doing a good job, because where else are you going to invest yeah. in for the yeah. thing? Yeah. That will all equal out over time. But for mm-hmm. the time being, we're at this point, and uh, and it's a bit of a race. Yeah. So I think we're seeing all of the same patterns that we've seen historically. You know, even with Web One, right? If you think about sort of you know the the early days of the you know dot com boom and then bust, right? Yeah, you're seeing the same type of cycles. Yep. Of course, yeah, don't ones- believe it. Don't believe it. Still to this day, people have yes. written off the internet because of the dot com boom. That's right. That's right. You know, yeah. um, something that is. Uh, 
Uh, be, as we talk through this and intellectual property with the blockchain more than ever, I think is in the forefront of understanding and conversations. How does someone like yourself, how does someone like Animoca Brands, how do, the, how do you make the decisions of, okay, new IP creation, new games versus like what you're doing right now with Enway and, and working with the Olympics? How do you make those kind of decisions, you know, overall as a business of, hey, investing, building community around new IP and taking this technology and understanding and going out and working with, you know, esteemed partners like the Olympics, which, you know, obviously right. one of the most, you know, famed and held on a pedestal brands in human history. Right. Well, so first of all, one of the things in the way we built Animoca Brands is a little bit uh, sort of based on sort of the history of, you know, our own experiences, right? And so, you know, I started off very early with the internet uh, in Hong Kong. I, I built one of Hong Kong's first internet service providers in the early 90s, <laughs> 93, <laughs> cloud computing business in 98, which wasn't called cloud, it was called ESP, mm -hmm. you know, um, email business, and then later mobile games business. So all of these collections of experiences sort of kind of built up to what Animoca Brands became today as a, a sort of set of experiences that I've witnessed in the past. And one of them, one of the models was that in the late 90s, uh, when we were building Outplays, which ended up becoming a large email service provider, ultimately, uh, we were participants, right? We were sort of, we saw the internet, we saw all the changes, and sort of, we were swimming in the stream with them. We we're like, okay, fine, great. We all go mm -hmm. do stuff and, and this is gonna be wonderful. And, and so we just jumped in the pool with everyone else and, and swam along and built stuff and, and it was awesome. Uh, but of course, back then, you know, I was much younger, less experienced, um, and some of the things that uh, that happened afterwards was not what I wanted to see, right? Because we all were building, you know, the, everyone building in the '90s were generally hoping for this incredible open internet that was yeah. kind of a little bit chaotic and free and wonderful, and then suddenly it became platformed and controlled and you know all that stuff yep, that yep. we don't want to see, right? Um, but that's the result of us swimming in the pool and not being able to really direct it because, frankly, we lacked power, right? I think, mm -hmm. and much of that power sort of was in, in the hands of money that basically designed business models that wanted to have walled gardens because they wanted to benefit solely from the network effect that was generated from that. Correct. So we decided that for Animoca, we would take that experience differently for a couple of reasons. One, we're, we're a little bit wiser, we hope. Two, we had a little bit more money back then. And three, as a result, that maybe we could play a role in which we would be able to not just swim uh, along with everyone, but maybe even help sort of shape it a little bit, which is yeah. one of the reasons why as Animoca, we ended up making so many investments in the space. We're not a VC, so we don't have a fund. Mm -hmm. It's all out of balance sheet. But we've done over, so far, we've done over 65 investments in the non-fungible token space. Many of the companies that you'll probably have heard of, whether it's like, you know, OpenSea or Dapper yeah. Labs, you know, uh, Wax or those guys. But mm -hmm. we invested in them from 2018 yeah. and in 2019 and, you know, very While early. also building certain products on, like you mentioned, same balance sheet that, one might find competitive at times, you know, uh, or maybe not be able to pinpoint why you would have a team building out something and then go and invest in another team that might have a similar makeup, you know, right. to what and you're so doing. The reason, but I understand. And the reason we did that is because we don't think it's a winner takes all scenario. And if you accept that this is a world where a setup with which we think blockchain and the whole network effect of owning, owning your own stuff on, on the chain um, can allow for that, 
then you can actually build something together while mm -hmm. you also fund others because it will just grow the ecosystem mm -hmm. as a whole. Right? Yeah, we and talk a from, lot about in Gary's world of, you know, to to build a, a great building, you don't have to knock down other buildings. It actually right. probably it looks better next to other buildings. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things that was important for us is that, you know, who knows whether our product is the best or not, but if we have enough uh, exposure to the ecosystem at large, mm -hmm. then we can make an ecosystem beneficial decision that is not in conflict with our business, right? So, I, you know, like I don't believe, for instance, that uh, any of the companies, including, you know, like, you know, for all the flack that companies like Facebook and whatever receive, you know, obviously because of the position of power that they have, yeah. nobody set out to say, we're going to do this, right? <laughs> nobody yeah, yeah, nobody yeah. set out to do bad things, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, it happens because it grows, the circumstances and whichever. But then also what happens is, is that, you know, you are now in a situation where you have to almost defend your monopoly because if you mm -hmm. don't you're actually surrendering power and that goes against the principles of your your stockholders and your stakeholders and whatever it is that you need to protect right yeah whereas if you take an ecosystem approach even if you perhaps sacrifice your overall sort of let's call it power base a little mm -hmm. bit mm -hmm. because you are e sufficiently invested in the ecosystem and it grows as well yeah. Actually, net net, you should be better. And so the parallel that I think of it is essentially like if we're because you know I think of ourselves as living in sort of a, a, a digital feudal age, yeah, of course, with all the platforms, right? Yeah, and we're all digital serfs. Yeah. Now, when you think in history, what happened to the monarchies that had to open up? Sure, the kings lost some power, mm -hmm. but they net net, if they owned their land, and yeah. Stuff, they, yeah. I mean, they, you know, the queen yeah. is still what the wealthiest. Of course, the yeah. They they you know, right. it's it's the argument really what kind of making is, hey, should Google, should Facebook break themselves up for right. longer lasting, you know, the ecosystem, longer lasting survival versus having to, you know, react to other people's hand. Correct. And also as a result, as we know historically, and that's the whole idea originally about antitrust is that if, uh, if you know, monopolies get too large, then they will start inadvertently creating practices that right. want to hurt competition because it yeah. hurts them. Right? Yeah. And so I, I, so the idea here being that in order to avoid a situation where we might be there, and mm -hmm. I'm not saying that we want, you know, we may become this sort of great powerful company that then ends up trying to control stuff, not at all. Yeah. The design yeah. of the sort of investment portfolio and the very diverse way of doing it was intended to be this way. Also, it allows us to make decisions on products that don't have to be exclusive to mandate sort of, oh, you must work with us, or you must do this, or you must do that, which would be normally a typical, call it strategic investment, right? The yeah, strategic yeah, investment yeah. is you work together, and by exactly. the way, you've got to promote our products, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and while that's nice, it's no longer an obligation because actually if a number of portfolio companies work together through our collaboration and our involvement, then that's actually victory enough, and Benefit, we generally yeah. grow. And I think I think that's the approach that we decided to take, which is unconventional. Very and much. And I will so. say that in the beginning, it was quite difficult for for us to sort of get let's call it more mainstream in the tech investors. Yeah. Because they're like, well, you should it's focus so on counterintuitive. You know, what are you? Right? Exactly. Exactly. It's yeah. like you know, you're enabling your competitors. You should really just you know. So we're like, <laughs> yeah. okay, fine. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Give me a little. Uh, let, let's tap in off off the IP conversation. Um, what is it that that y'all are building with the Olympics? Ah, so we have uh, 
the exclusive rights for Olympic non-fungible tokens, which are like the pins, medallions, and so on. And mm -hmm. that's a long multi-year license, which yeah. is being launched on which Play. Olympic pins in general are a very collector's item. Yes, uh, correct. Very collector's yeah. item. Uh, if you go to nwayplay.com, you can see some of the visuals. It's pretty cool. And that's only a first set of visuals that is being released. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing um, on, on this one is that it includes all of the collectibles straight from you know the origin, includes mm -hmm. Athens, you know, nice. uh, the first Winter Olympics, uh, all that stuff. But we also have the exclusive uh, mobile gaming rights for the Olympic Games, basically including Beijing uh, Winter Olympics and Paris 24. Nice. So the team is busy at work making a very cool mobile game, which will then also incorporate some of the use of these non-fungible tokens inside the game system. So, you know, I think it's sort of the way that we look at NFTs is, you know, there's a collectible experience, which is awesome. But if we can give it utility, it may have more, more long-term value and more long-term benefits and, and have, have a better effect on the network as a whole. Yeah. So that's what we're basically building out uh, with the Olympics. Are you a collector yourself of things? Yes, I think all of us are somehow. Yeah, right? I what, think what are, Yes, very much so. Inadvertently, I think it's it's something I talk with my team a lot about when we create content. Is as a content creator, you know, we consume as humans. We consume so much. Yes, and then sometimes when we go to create, we forget about what we enjoy consuming. You know, right. so it, meaning when you come to work as a content creator, you take your, Hey, this is good content cap off. And you make it like, what do I, I got to kind of do these things. I think it goes to collecting too. I, I'm big into sports cards and trading cards, sure. but whatever it might be, you know, people tend to scoff at you would pay that for a painting or you would pay that for a skin in Fortnite. Yet right. at their house, they're collecting Sports Illustrated covers, you know, right. and have stacks sitting in their, you know, exactly. attic or whatever. Or Pokemon Any, cards or whatever. Whatever it might be. Any uh, random fun things you like to, to collect or, or what what uh, what are you interested in? I mean, maybe before I go there, the quick thing. So here's, I think the interesting thing about collecting is, is that, you know, people, uh, especially those who don't have a strong collecting DNA, but still inadvertently collect, but don't fully appreciate what they're collecting is. Yeah. They don't necessarily think of collecting as an emotional experience. They think of collecting very much as a sort of value-driven experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, what is it worth or whatever? And, you know, the thing is that the majority of things that people collect may not at all be related to how much money you make from it, right? Yeah. And that's the difference. And I think it's very similar to NFT uh, buyers as well. It's like where the clash was between people who are interested in NFTs versus people who are interested just in the fungible tokens. Yeah. Is that the fungible tokens are traders in their mentality. So everything is driven around what's the value, right? Kind of like stock traders almost, yeah. right? Yep. But for non-fungible token uh, guys, of course you have speculators, but the majority of people own it because they love it or they want to have they use yeah. it or have an association with it. And you know, it's like it's like someone buys a painting today, they don't think about selling it right away. Right away. Right? They think yeah. about they think about I enjoy it. And if I get a good price, that's great, mm -hmm. whichever. So and I think and I think the money becomes a validation layer because that's the one way in which it's more universal. Oh, okay, you bought this thing and now it's worth more. You may not want to sell it, but the validation is. I'm a good collector, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, yeah, and, and I can I can I, virtue signal to everyone else that this that, was a good decision, and and that aspect became the, the sort of network benefit and network effect in a physical sense, because we didn't have a sort of virtual way of connecting us, so the value of money was essentially to say that was good, 
right? Yeah. Or, you know, that was your endorsement. That was like your, that was like your, your three stars. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it goes all the way back to right. like just barter economies and yeah. Hey, yeah, I'll come over and, yeah. you know, move some stones in exchange for some rice, you know, and that's yeah. just a, a, exactly. a, a, a trade-off that we decided to make. Cause that's what I value. And you have that. Yeah. So I think for the things that, uh, one of the things I collect, um, uh, you know, and again, this is personal to me and who yeah. knows how valuable this is, is um, I collect notes, musical notes. Amazing. Uh, which is a little bit of a niche industry, but yeah. I have a music background. Yeah. Um, um, I, I grew up studying music. Uh, it really was more of a, my parents thing, but I guess that, that somehow stuck with me. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I ended up, so I, I collect musical notes particularly classics as in classics i mean not like rolling stones but more yeah, like Mozart yeah, yeah. And yeah, yeah that kind yeah. of stuff mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, and i know a lot of people who don't even know what that is right but it's 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 meaningful to me that's right. it right yeah. and and it's not particularly valuable as an experience in terms of i don't know that i can sell them for a lot and, and i don't do it for that right mm -hmm. and um and so i started also then collecting sort of sort of uh, sort of handwritten notes and stuff from you know composers like mm -hmm. Bach and Verdi and Puccini Amazing. and whatever and but these are things that I grew up with as a child right so yeah. for me it was a moment of nostalgia and so I valued these because I went to the opera and I saw these performances and it meant something to me right mm -hmm. and then to my children it's like what is this yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, old yeah. scribbles of writing yeah. it's like okay right yeah, yeah you know yeah. and and I think that's what's true for all collectors whether you collect shoes or stamps or coins or whatever it's it's about it's about what it means just to you and I think that's that's good enough yeah and it's it's harder it may be not harder, but, you know, again, the bubble, the, the being so inside this ecosystem, and then you kind of step outside of it and, you know, people look like, what? Uh, that's interesting to you, or I don't believe it or this, but there's so much noise happening right now yes. that I think it, yeah. it really takes a strong-willed individual to stick to what they like right? Mm. It, it, it's hard to really cut to the core of your passion and then execute against it. Because really, what this has done is exploded the amount of noise that comes through and so many different yeah. kind of, you know, neurological triggers of how should I be, you know, going about this, really versus tapping inside and saying, actually, this is what I enjoy. And I'm going to stick to my my guns on it but that is really where we're also finding happiness you know right. even before success that's right and i think those items of passion or purpose or whatever it is that sort of is is important to you is actually how you power through through these moments of doubt right mm -hmm. if you feel like i'm collecting this and I'm, mm, my friends are saying this is no good and you know i'm wasting my time whether you know, it's Pokemon cards or playing games or, yep. you know, whatever it is that some authority, whether it's a parent, teacher, whatever it tells, tells you, you, you know, yeah, you shouldn't do this. It's not good for you. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. If you're passionate about it, if it's purposeful to you, you will take whatever criticism through the darkest days and you'll still do it because yeah. it's important to you. It's not about them. Right? It's about you. And, yeah. and I think this is the power of a power of that. Do you remember the first day you heard about, and I'm not sure what technology it might've been, but I, you could start with blockchain, but Ethereum in general, like, do you remember those that when that, when it, when it shifted and when you kind of, obviously you can go back to, you know, if you played in web one and web two it came from a music background, do you remember when you first were planted this seed of, you know, really 
digital ownership or or kind of that next evolution of the web and what maybe that first week or two looked like to you? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there's multiple moments, right? They crystallize and you can't necessarily know exactly what that is. Because at the time when they first experienced, you know, I, I didn't connect the dots, right? Yeah, <laughs> Retroactively, yeah. everything's like, yeah, of oh, course. Right? Yeah, yeah. But, 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 you know, when it happened at the moment, you're just like, I don't know what that was all about. But I think there were two, as a, I would say from my childhood, there were two major events. This was in the 80s um, that sort of gave me a perspective. And I think it crystallized, obviously, over time, right? But it gave me that initial perspective. The first one is, so I got into technology because... I ended up as a as a kid writing software, MIDI software, uh, on Atari, and because they had the MIDI plugs, so I yeah. was able to do something. And yep. you know, I was I grew up in Vienna in Austria, um, mm -hmm. and so I was surrounded with people amazing who were place musical. for music. Yeah, yeah, far more gifted than I was, mm -hmm. and so I, frankly speaking, couldn't really compete with them in terms of um, sort of general musical talents. Mm -hmm. So I used a computer to cheat. And I basically, uh, you know, and, and I guess today people will say that's smart, but back then it was definitely true. Yeah, yeah. Because because I basically was able to compose faster because I had uh, had a keyboard attached in which I could just sort of write my music because I was just able to sort of listen to it, and as opposed to write it down on pen and paper. The, to me, that was all sort of a sort of a sort of a, a weird sort of twist in terms of how you how you wrote music. And of course, today everyone does it that way. But back yeah. then, do you, you know, draw kind of any parallels between that and what you went through there with maybe some of the criticism that digital artists are now receiving of that's not real art? Um, probably. Yeah, except that people didn't even know what that was. Okay. So the ignorance was so high. It was like, what? OK, yeah. so 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 in that sense. But I mean, I think what what the discovery of that did for me was that I ended up putting the software on back then CompuServe, right? Which is kind of like a pre-internet bulletin board mm -hmm. system. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, like people did back then was sort of public domain and shareware software, which is kind of like a precursor of open source, right? Yeah. They ended up, yeah. uh, you end up putting your address and say, hey, if you like the software, go send me some money. And uh, and you know, you don't expect anything. You just think that you know, uh, it's just for bragging rights. And then uh, suddenly, I started getting checks in the mail. I didn't have a bank account. And then Atari basically approached me and said, hey, you know, we like what you built. Would you like to come work for us? Now, here's the thing. I was, you know, even though German is my mother tongue, I grew up in Austria, as a, you know, Chinese person living in Austria in the 80s, I was definitely an anomaly. Speaking German. Yes. Yeah, but but also being Chinese, right? Yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah. I, I, I wasn't I wasn't subject to any sort of extreme racism, none, none of that stuff. But it was just I definitely knew I was different, right? Yeah. And yeah. so many many choices that sort of uh, or paths that were laid out for me were based on, frankly, you know what I looked like, right? So yeah. everyone assumed, oh, so you're going to work for a Chinese restaurant? It's like not all Chinese <laughs> in the world own a restaurant, right? But that yep. was a stereotype of the '80s because every Chinese person who was outside likely had a restaurant, so yeah. that was the assumption, right? You were stereotyped. Mm -hmm. uh, and for me, it was this interesting discovery that actually, you know, because of this sort of technology layer and communication, it didn't matter who you were, what you looked like, or even how old you were. And you could actually be doing all this wonderful stuff, which led me into technology. Yeah. And so that was the first discovery in terms of what that sort of network power was. So the first, first one. And I think the second one was, you know, um, when I when I got to the US, um, I started really getting heavily engaged with multi-user dungeons, MUDs, right? And I bought my very first sword in a MUD called, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was called Perilous Realms. I mean, it was all text, yeah. right? Nothing yeah, special. yeah, yeah. 
And, uh, and you know, I, I just needed to compete in something and I just couldn't. And uh, I, I ended up buying a rare sword from from some person and I yeah. literally mailed him like, you know, 10 or 20 bucks, I forgot, right? And, yeah. then, and then later on, we met in some CD bar in the, in the yeah, mud. Exactly, he yeah. basically passed me his sword, right? Yeah, yeah. That was my first my first purchase of a of a of a virtual item and i yeah. definitely felt i owned it right it wasn't yeah. a case of you know oh i'm renting something or whatever you yeah. know and 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 there was actually the interesting thing is is that way back when uh in the late 80s early 90s they were all talking about this as ownership right oh you bought this you owned it and maybe we should talk about like the the message boards and the bulletin board systems were full of conversations around you know um you know should there be an exchange should we and i think even I think Avalon even sort of actually had an item exchange, you know. So, so actually, all these ideas that today were like, "Wow, this is amazing," actually already really began in sort, totally. of, the, sort of early yeah, sort of quasi pre-internet days for 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 gaming, you know, in general, and obviously in the mainstream media or consumers' eyes, this this age of gaming that's happened over the last two years, right? Coming to the forefront and gaming explosion and streaming. And I think what Fortnite did so much of, uh, I'm fascinated by blockchain technology and NFT stuff. I saw it really happen in gaming around this Pokemon 25th anniversary, this, you know, the cards coming back and everything. The subconscious understanding of digital ownership is so deep and yes. I, and why I'm very passionate about the education around it too, because I think it's going to click and there's just this point that's going to come where people that's are right. going to push back on, you know, ultimate team is a $1.4 billion, $1.5 billion business. And I think largely the, the players don't know that there's an actual alternative. Right. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things right now is that, you know, the gaming Ultimately, I mean, most of the world is gaming, right? Yeah, the, everything, sort of the right? Game theory and uh, yeah. Everything. Yeah. And what's interesting now is that particularly when it comes to sort of online games or just mobile games or whatever gaming system they're using has already opened up our first pathway into the metaverse. Mm -hmm. Because after all, when we go into a game, why are we going into a game? Mm -hmm. We're not going in a game just because we're having individual fun. It's not just like watching Netflix. We're actually going in the game because we're hanging out with friends. Yeah. We're playing together. Yeah. We're competing. We're making new friends. We're getting to know each other. And these social constructs is what we used to do when we went to the soccer field or we mm -hmm. went basketball or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how do we gain interaction and understand is he a good guy? Is he someone I'd like to hang out with? Is this someone I want to understand? You know, does he cheat? You yeah, know, yeah, is yeah. he fair play? Yeah. You know, all yeah. these things, right? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and, and actually online games have become that platform and it's kind of like sort of, let's call it the 0.5 version of that of that metaverse. And in yeah. fact, I think I remember back in the early days of World of Warcraft, you know, uh, some, some, some groups of people were thinking, you know what? These people have real leadership skills, right? If you mm -hmm. basically are sort of mm -hmm. doing a raid, organizing yeah, you know 10 sure. 20 30 people from all over the world that person who's running the raid actually is maybe not a ceo or a business leader yeah. it could be you know the janitor from next door but that portrays incredible leadership skills when it comes to games maybe that's another way of unearthing unlocked potential that was just not possible because of the physical world had restraints whether it's social yeah. political you know geographical whatever right totally. in the virtual sense you can live whatever you want and i think now this is the word i think it's so important now is that as time went on it's arguable 
that the digital you is perhaps maybe more important than your physical you. Something I'm, I'm right? fascinated by is how are digital rights going to play out? Can you be too you know, avatars or have two personas, you know, with protections, whatever those might look like online. Um, One, uh, so my, I'm realizing that this, my, I'm signed in under this wrong Zoom account. So it might cut us off in two minutes, 45 seconds. Before we get close, I want to, I want to talk to you about one thing that I brought up the other day. And then I saw that there's involvement in it. I haven't played enough with sandbox yet but obviously mm. is you guys's world and two things i saw that roller roller coaster tycoon yes. has something happening within sandbox roller coaster tycoon right. was a, such a big game for me growing up and really like you know this understanding of going from you know buying it for 35 dollars to play to earn that world makes so much sense to me. Sims as well, GTA role playing, you know, nowadays too. But can you just touch on what's going on with Roller Coaster Tycoon within Sandbox? Yeah, sure. Well, generally, a sort of Roller Coaster Tycoon is basically building a sort of amusement park, as it were, inside the Sandbox. And they've got several types that are differently themed. And so Atari has multiple properties around the Sandbox. Yeah. And that's kind of what the Sandbox has become. It's become sort of, you know, a place where people build fun experiences, mm-hmm. but now building sort of their own virtual homes, yeah. virtual property. And it's become sort of, uh, sort of I, I, I am starting to describe it as a kind of digital Manhattan yeah. because everyone kind of wants a piece of it because who's there and who lives there and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see the effect because uh, to your point, some people have like awesome memories with Roller Coaster Tycoon and like, hey, I want to own some land next to that. Yeah. You know, and I want to experience it. I want to be close to that. That's my association. So yeah. buying a piece of land next to Roller Coaster Tycoon isn't just about, you know, a speculative thing. It's a romantic thing or an emotional thing or a sentimental thing as well. And and they can actually add on to their experiences next to Roller Coaster Tycoon as well. So that's kind of what's happening there. Yeah. And so and, so and is it more of an entertainment kind of their uh, uh, another use of that IP or have they built almost a functioning game system? on top of a plot in the sandbox? So it's in development. Yep. Uh, what we do know is so that in sandbox, you can do both. Yeah. And given the fact that it is Atari, I would assume that it is going to be more than just mm-hmm. you know, a house. Right? Yeah, which is- It's gonna be a full on experience. Of course. Travel is such a, I think, important, um, just to give new perspectives and things like food and, and just from a cultural understanding. And obviously now digital worlds have uh, enabled a new layer of travel without going anywhere. Um, but architecture yep. is something that brings out such emotion and I'm, uh, I'm just excited to discover, you know, people that are building lands on top of spaces like, you know, sandbox or what have you. Um, do you have any favorites? Do you have any any that you keep an eye on, you know, maybe within your universe or even without uh, of just some kind of people that have been developing some special stuff um, within sandbox or even other, you know, virtual lands? Well, I mean, first of all, there's so much happening there, right? So uh, singling out, I feel a little bit like- um, Yep, yep, <laughs> fair, of, fair, <laughs> fair, So you say, oh, we prefer this one or whatever one, right? Well, well, just um, you as a yeah. human, you know, everyone has different emotions or things that they like. Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say that when the one of the first announcements, of course, was when Atari signed up, right? That was mm-hmm. kind of very special because my first job was with Atari, yeah. right? So there's obviously that sentimental attachment. Although that Atari 
and the Atari of now is entirely different. Mm-hmm. The brand is still there and there's association. And Animoco Brands as a corporation actually ended up doing a, a number of strategic partnerships with Atari outside mm-hmm. of the sandbox as well, you know, making independent blockchain games and, and so on, you know, as a whole as well. Yep. Which we Some did. of the casino stuff is like... I'm yeah, also... so we're not doing casinos ourselves, right? Yep, but yep. everything, uh, yeah, but yes, there's some casino stuff I think they did over at the Central Land, yep. um, and so on. So yes, so so obviously there is um, uh, there is that that kind of a attachment. But the other thing is also when you look at some of the stuff that people were doing on on, on the art side, and you know, I think when when you know the Metaverse and Whale Shark started sort mm-hmm. of basically owning large plots of land and really building their virtual experiences on it, and talking about sort of the launch of essentially their museums, if you will, mm-hmm. on platform. That was cool because yeah. they're pretty awesome sort of NFT crypto OGs. That was sort of an added endorsement in terms of, okay, they're building stuff there. They're yeah. taking it seriously. And then I think the other thing is in, in, in the, sort of the, you know, the brands, whether it's just like the Smurfs or or sort of, you know, um, um, other other IP, that the Care Bears that ended up going in. These are all kind of classic old brands. Right? Yeah. Kind of, who, you know, like <laughs> my kids are like, who are these yeah. funny bears that sort of, you know, emit light out of their sort of yeah. bodies? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> However, they're so awesome, right? And Amazing. and so sort of, again, it's emotional, sentimental, mm-hmm. quirky, funny history, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's you know, every day, you know, new people emerge that are buying land in sandbox. Yeah. And you know, we don't even, you know, we, we no longer know who everyone is, everyone but they is. just announce it on Twitter. Yep. And it's just it's just really awesome how that's I, um something that you know, with 1.37 p.m. that I we, we cover and I strive to bring more awareness to it is kind of, you know, I, I grew up, I, I was born in 91 and whether it's music or some of our cultural, you know, shifters, right? People that have defined so much of what happens in, in, in culture and the way people dress and sports has been such a, a factor in that. You know, I think game, you know, map designers, game designers now are some of the most cultural, you know, Donald mustard, I believe impacted more youth culture around the world, you know, like on the level of Kanye or the beat, like really up there. Um, But also I don't think it's the necessary nature or those individuals generally haven't come to the forefront. Like who designed Gulch? in halo two or whatever it was three, right? right. There's more yeah. memories around that than a lot of, you know, other things that people maybe get credit for. And, and that's something I'm very, you know, excited about. And you're right, because one of the things around game designers in particular is that they work for a studio. Yeah. And they're typically sort of masked inside the frame of a studio. So you mm-hmm. know the studio, but you don't know the individuals involved. It right. is a collective effort. I mean, as a as a as a game company that does make its own products and games, it isn't one game designer necessarily. It is a series of people working on it, and the input is very much community led, at least yeah. in terms of the company building and stuff. But but there are some people who have this kind of status, at least in the gaming world, whether it's like Sid Meier, mm-hmm. or Peter Molyneux, mm-hmm. or like you know people yeah. like that who have also defined you know generations in incredible ways through their ideas. Yeah. And they're thinking very big, but sometimes they thought larger than the actual technology was able to deliver. <laughs> yeah, right? They were yeah, sort of already yeah. in the future and then yeah. really desperately trying to make it work with the technology on hand. And it just didn't quite work out the way they wanted to, but sort of you know, seeing the future as it were. And, and I think the people making games after all, kind of had an eye over the future. They are the storytellers 
right? They are the book authors of yeah. this generation, right? So, so, so they 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 tell it through this medium, and we live through that, and we expect that. And now there is gamer lore, there is gamer culture, mm-hmm. there's sort of you know things that we do, you know, that might be alien for people who are not in games, but everyone understands the expressions, you know, yeah. what, what happens, right? I mean, like you know, I mean, you know, I mean. When people talk about sort of you know that was a sweaty game. Right? Yeah, yeah. What is he like, totally? Well, what is that about? Did yeah. you actually have sweat? Like, are you like like did you work out? Like, why is it sweaty, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. you start to see it bleed into other you know culture. Like I'm seeing it in sports and and this mesh yes. of of these cultures. That's right. Exactly, yeah. and it goes in as well, right? Exactly, mm-hmm. and and so 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 it bleeds into everything because at the end of the day most of the world is playing games. Yeah. And, you know, if you think about sort of where they're spending a lot of their time, especially with the COVID situation where gaming has just accelerated, mm-hmm. you know, that entire sort of experience and that entire sort of sort of virtual being in games has become perhaps the dominant form of social engagement, at least for the yeah. time being. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it's temporary anymore, right? You know, COVID just pushed forward what I think was an inevitable agenda, but right. now basically just accelerated so fast forward. And people are finding, actually, I kind of like this. Yeah. I don't need to necessarily sort of go out. And I think the big thing that's changed is, uh, one of the big things that's changed is that, of course, the world is full of very different personalities, but was very extrovert oriented just because of the nature of, you know, being social, being connected and so on. Mm-hmm. And with COVID, actually, it brought to the forefront people who were much more introverted in nature mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a in a sort of, um, I guess, I would say, you know, I, I, not that they have celebrities per se, but more comfortable in the way that they are acting because totally. they can have their close circles, but they can still be connected, you know, mm-hmm. at their time, at their leisure, as opposed to the social engagement. You know, it's, it's no longer like, okay, you got to hang out, you know, at a bar or yeah. you know, at a physical place. You can hang out entirely virtual. And run businesses and have real relationships, for sure. Uh, One thing, you know, and even designers, uh, avatars, and, you know, when I see Apple rolls out iOS 15 and on the front page of apple.com is all Memojis, you know, Supreme or Kith or Nike for that matter, they're all going to have large businesses creating these digital outfits. Absolutely. You know, very and much the metaverses so. will will incorporate them yep. and take advantage of them and use them. And I think this is the this is this is what's incredible. I mean, already on a micro scale, right? Uh, whether this is even with our own F1 Delta Time or with Axie Infinity or mm-hmm. whichever, right? Yeah. People are making real money, real income. Yeah. Uh, in and, I saw and with Gabby, you were you're going back. I've been paying attention to them with Yield Guide and yeah. F1. Also, you know, before we we jump off. What a explosion, you know, obviously Netflix and so many factors come into play, but, you know, the growth of, of F1 here in the States, even in the last, you know, eight months, you know, can't be understated. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think in, on F1 Delta time, actually, I think, you know, just a week or a half ago, you know, basically uh, one of our players was interviewed and he actually put a down payment in the house in Australia for his uh, family of, of three to, uh, you know, from, from, from his income that he made playing F1 Delta time. I mean, you yeah. know, like these are stories yeah. that are sort of futuristic, but it's totally. here right now. Right now. And it's, uh, you know, it goes back to what we talked about very early on, which something I'd love to say is like niche is dead. There is no more niche. Right. You, you can be interested in the smallest things in the world and, and find these communities. And, 
you know, another, and I, I feel like we could talk for hours, but we'll find a way to, uh, to wrap it up, but just, you know, the digital nations or, or internet states, you know, community wise, um, it's just another very fascinating emergence of, you know, what do you tie your identity to? And it can very right. much be, Hey, I'm part of a community. Where's the community? Uh, online, you know, discord server right. or, or this or that, yeah. you know, hanging out yeah. with my friends tonight. Where? Online. Right. Great. In fact, it's very, very normal to just, yeah. just you know, hook up and play games online and, and then chat and then it branches out from there. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, we are already very virtual and actually, if you think about, it, this is one of the things that we as people or as humans have, which is sort of this boundless imaginative ability. Mm -hmm. So we can imagine and create things in our mind and actually live things through our mind that may not be physically there, but are as real as anything. I mean, at, mm -hmm. the, at the end of the day, you know, what is love, right? Yeah, or yeah. what is, you know, like, I mean, you know, it's, 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 totally. it's still a mystery, yeah, right? Or emotion um, or someone goes exactly. to a museum and stands in front of a picture and it's like- just And it's awestruck, right? You know, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's in and of itself, not logical, but it is powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, um, I appreciate you taking the time. This has been a lot of My fun. Pleasure. Yeah. I, um, I hope it's not the, I, I don't foresee it being the last time we, we chat and I, um, you know, I'll, I'll be in touch with the team in terms of any developments that you guys are going, you know, I connected because we were connected with some of the press team and we're covering some of the Olympic stuff. And I reached out and said, Hey, I just think it's very interesting. The, the web that you guys are building, like you mentioned about the investing where on paper, strategically it may not necessarily make sense it's not like you as an individual have this side vc that you're investing in you know and and kind right. of running this business it's no it's all encompassing and so um good luck keep pushing and and we'll be we'll be along for the ride you know paying attention if you made it this far I, I appreciate you again. I told you I appreciate you at the beginning, but I appreciate you again. Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at Ty Schmidt 5 what you thought of the convo. I believe it's Y-S-I-U is Yat's Twitter. Um, and if you're like me, F1 has exploded in, in interest, and uh, I'm excited to see what, what keeps happening there. Talk soon. This is 1.37 p.m. Own your future. Start this minute. 1.37 p.m. is a Gallery Media Group original production.